turn with me to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Let us hear God's word. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord the glory, the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come unto his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh. For he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now as we come to this psalm, and as I mentioned, this sermon is entitled Worship and Witness. I hope we'll see just how intertwined God's worship and his witness are. The psalm really breaks down into three main sections. We have first, in the first two verses, actually three, a call to worship and witness. Then in verses four through six, we have the motives for worship and witness. And then in verses seven and following, we have an expanded call to worship and witness. Worship and witness, three motives, worship and witness. Let's look at this first call, to worship and to witness, in verses 1 through 3. Notice in verses 1 and 2 who this call to worship is addressed to. It's addressed to the nations. Addressed to the nations. In verse 1, we have sing unto the Lord three times. That's a Hebraism. The three times is a superlative. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless his holy name. Bless all that he is. For the Hebrew one's name is not just a few letters with a certain sound. It reflects the whole person. 
When he says bless his name, he's probably, I think there he's saying more than just praise God. He's actually saying and praise God in song, but also in prayer. Bless him in song and in prayer. Bless him for all that he is. All of his divine perfections, his attributes. Sing unto him a new song. Or an excellent song, it could be translated. Calvin said that it's new to the heathen. All these songs right here in the Psalter are completely new to the heathen. And I would argue that they're always new. They're evergreen for the Christian. To ever be reminded of God's mercies and his great redemptive acts in history. It's always new, isn't it? It's always fresh. And if it's not, we need to ask God to do a work of grace in us. If we grow weary in the praise that he has given us to bring to him. But he says this singing unto the Lord, this blessing his holy name is to be done by the nations. All the earth is to sing unto the Lord a new song. All the peoples of the earth we see in the parallel in verse 7. Then in verse 2, sing unto the Lord, again three times, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. We ought to worship God daily. And this, given the broadness of the word that's translated day here, this could also mean week to week. Because we do worship the Lord day to day, but we also worship him week to week, don't we? There's a certain rhythm that God has established for us, his people, to worship him individually and his families and his corporate bodies. Show forth his salvation. Show forth his deliverance. He's speaking to heathen that have yet to be saved or yet be delivered. And he's saying, now sing of his deliverance. Sing about all he is. Bless his holy name. And bless his work of salvation. Having given a call to worship in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist David, remember this is an orphan psalm. We don't have a title in this psalm. We have nothing about the context of this psalm in verse 1 of the Hebrew Bible, like many psalms. But as we've just seen in 1 Chronicles 15, we know about the context of this psalm. And I think we have strong implications of who was the author of this psalm. David says, now, addressing God's covenant people, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all peoples. If the people of the heathen, if the nations or the peoples of the earth are ever going to worship God for who he is and what he has done, his people that have already kissed the Son, have already, by God's grace, had his word and his spirit and them come together in, a, in, in conversion, it's only them that are going to go tell them. That's God's plan for the extension of his kingdom. Right, children, you've never seen any signs in heaven, right? Plead a Christ while he may be found. found. Right, you don't 
That's not the way God has chosen to save us. He's chosen to save us through weak instruments who bring his word. Ambassadors. Imperfect ambassadors. But ambassadors who come in the authority of Christ with a peace treaty. Offering sinful rebels forgiveness. Justification. Not just being forgiven, but being reckoned as righteous. And actually being drawn into the family, adopted. And then being given a new nature, a beginning of a good work that he'll continue to the day of Christ Jesus. He says, we're to show forth his salvation. That's what we're called to do. Declare his glory, his heaviness, literally. Amongst the heathen, or could be translated nations or peoples. Might be a better translation there. Declare who God is so that other people can worship for him for who he is. Declare his wonders amongst the people. Here speaking of God's works. His works of creation and providence. Especially his work of salvation. Centering on his work at the cross. Where all his attributes meet together. Particularly his love and his justice and wrath. All tied up, all bound up in the work of the Savior. Yes, in his active obedience, but especially in his passive obedience. Being willing to be a curse. To be a curse of God. Instead of us. As you hear the ironic benediction in a little while. Consider that that benediction, turn it on its head this afternoon and make it a malediction. Make it just the opposite. And then recognize that's exactly what the Father did to the Son on the cross. From the time he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the time he said it was finished, God gave him a malediction so that we might have a benediction. And that's what we're to take to the nations. Because this is the God we serve. It's very interesting in the Septuagint, the Hebrew translation, or excuse me, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the word declare here in verse 3 is the word euangelion, or the word we get evangelize from. That's what we're to do. We're to evangelize his glory among the heathen, his wonders amongst the people. Why? Because we are worshipers of the true God. That's why. And so David moves in, in verses 4 and 6, to motives. Motives that should fuel our worship and our witness. We need to have a why. We need to have a why for everything we do. Because if we lose the why for the things we do, we are likely to stop doing the good things we're doing. Because we don't know why we're doing them anymore. Isn't that part of the reason there's been such a drift in the evangelical church in America over the years? There's certain practices that we carry, but we don't exposit the word enough to remind the next generation why these practices are in place. And then eventually we just do them, but we can't remember why we do them. Then should it be surprising that our children... 
think we're hypocrites because we're doing all kinds of things we can't defend from Scripture? Isn't that the step process has happened in the evangelical church and there's a growing number of nuns, N-O-N-E, that no longer even say they're Christian? And church attendance is dwindling in our nation. So David here gives three whys. As they're carrying the ark up to Jerusalem, seeing that type of Christ there, going up to Jerusalem, David type of Christ taking it there, yet they envision the gospel going to the world. What are the three motives? First, David says, God is great, therefore he's greatly to be praised and feared. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Our God is great. I have to ask you personally, is your worship great? Does your, the greatness of your worship correspond with the greatness of the God you worship? And let's ask the question corporately. Is our worship great? Because that's the person we serve. We serve a great God. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all His divine attributes. He's incommunicable attributes. He's different than us. We cannot be too careful, too reverent, too zealous, or too joyful in worship. Did you get that? Because we serve a great God. Secondly, David says, God is the creator. For all the gods of the nations, verse 5, are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He says, the false gods of the heathen are idols, literally nothings, worthless. All right, Paul kind of echoes that in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. These false gods don't really even exist, right? God's created all things. Physical things, spiritual things, the seen world, the unseen world. He not only gives us the regulative principle in the second commandment, but I would argue that in a sense the third commandment is about a regulative principle too. God tells us how we're to regulate our inner man, our inner woman, while we're worshiping. We're to worship with reverence, with joy, with zeal. Those are things you can't see. But God sees He sees if our heart reflects our understanding of who he is and who he's declared himself to be to us. That's why posture matters. God's concerned. God who is spirit is concerned with posture in worship. Well, because he's made us body and soul. He's created both of those Good. We have to be careful not to fall into some platonic view that God's not concerned about the temporal. He is. 
We see that in worship and in witness. So God is great. That's a motive for worship. He's the creator of all things. He's in charge. He's also glorious. The third motive. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Matthew Henry could say God is awful and amiable. He's scary and he's friendly at the same time. And then he says, let us go forth in his strength, enamored with his beauty. Are we enamored with the beauty of God? As I considered verse 6 over the last week, it reminded me of some of some of beautiful stories, and some of them have been put into movies where you come into a great king's throne room, and he has his entourage with him, and if you come in his presence, you're called to bow down before him, worship him. But then that king has an entourage. He has people under him who are engaged in educating the community in the precepts of the rules, the laws of that community, in the history of the establishment of that community. He's engaged in governing that community with other, through others. And he also, when he calls us into his presence, he calls us out of his special presence to go in his ordinary presence to the people of God, to the community, for the building up of the community that we're part of, but then also to see that community expand, to see others be able to come under the blessing of that rule. And so what we... Having been blessed by coming under the rule of Christ, through the grace of God, giving us grace to kiss the Son. And that's, that's a figure, not, it is a figure of affection, but even primarily, kiss the Son in Psalm 2 is a picture of submission, primarily. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. God is all glorious. And so we're to come before him in his sanctuary, in his special, special presence. In Liberia, um, I preached a sermon a few years back in all the congregations we were working with. And I told them that in our Christian life, we're in God's presence all the time. But we're in his special, special presence when we come and worship him personally or in our families Special, squared. Then, when we worship him on his holy day amongst his people, we're in his special, special, special presence. Special cubed. And then when he comes in glory, or we go go to glory in our souls, we'll worship him in special, 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 special. Special to the fourth power relationship with him that presence and that's what awaits us we're in his special presence but if we come into his special presence ought we not to worship him the way he told us to come into his presence pastor Ives did an excellent job in demonstrating to us the the theological position of the forefathers of the surrounding 
communities that started this whole area in colonial times. And their commitment to worship God and to come into his presence the way he called them to come into his presence. In Liberia, I've given this illustration a number of times in sermons, and it seems to shake people a little bit. I guess tell them, imagine if after this service, President Wea's entourage approached this little building, and a special man, specially dressed, came out and said, President Wea wants to meet with you tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., He has a special assignment for you. You have been selected amongst all the Liberians for this special assignment. But, here's ten rules you've got to follow when you come see him. This is how you're to dress. This is how your posture's to be. When you're to approach, how you're to approach, what you're to say. I ask them, would you... Follow it. And they're all, yes, yes, we'll follow it. We'll follow it. And then I say, then shouldn't you follow the directions of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when he has offered you to come into his special, special presence every Lord's Day? Correct? An argument from the lesser to the greater. If we would do that in the horizontal realm amongst men, Yes, created in God's image, but all fallen. Why would we not do that in the vertical realm with God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords? So let these motives sink deeply in us. We need to be reminded of them routinely as we seek to worship him as he's directed in the second commandment, in the external, so to speak, of corporate worship, and also in the third commandment, the internal regulation that needs to take place in our lives. So we've seen a call. We've seen motives to worship and witness. Now look at another little repetition, a call to worship and witness, restated. A call to worship and witness, restated. First in verses 7 through 9, we have the call to worship. And then in 10 and following, the call to witness. Again, verses 7 through 9, just like 1 and 2, are addressed to the peoples or to the nations or kindreds of the peoples, as translated here, which could be translated families. Again, give unto three different times. Our Scottish metrical Psalter translated that give ascribe unto. Ye kindreds, or ye families of the earth, give God glory twice. Recognize his weightiness. Recognize his strength. Bring an offering to him. Now we can take this Old Testament terms and apply it in New Testament gospel worship. Certainly Paul who I believe is the author of Hebrews, no matter what anyone says, uh, in Hebrews 13, 15 says, By him, by Christ, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that's the Father, continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 
So we pray and we praise. We're offer, giving offerings to God in response to his word. I just want to remind you, I'm sure you've all heard this before, but our corporate worship is a dialogue. We're coming into God's presence. He starts the discussion with a call to worship. We ask for assistance. Then he speaks to us in scripture readings. We give prayer and praises back. Then we read and we have this word expanded and expounded in preaching. Then we give prayer and praise back. And then he concludes the whole discussion, the special discussion on the Lord's Day in his presence with a benediction. We're having a conversation. We're communing with God. That's the way we do it in our personal worship, our family worship. And so we do here. He calls the people there to worship in verse 9. Literally, the word could be translated bow down. Sometimes both in Greek and Hebrew, the word that's translated worship is, there's two different words in, in Hebrew and in Greek. One of the words means to bow down, kind of show reverence and awe and honor. The other one is a word that probably reflects service. We have a worship service, don't we? We serve God by giving him all the glory for all that he is and all that he's done each and every Lord's Day as we come into his special, special, special presence. I think in light of this, I want to just mention Revelation 14, 6, and 7. I have found this passage very interesting. Revelation 14, 6, and 7. I believe this is a picture given to John, who then puts it in words for us. He can't paint a picture for us. But he sees a picture, he sees something in heaven, he tries to put it in words, he puts it in words like he does in the rest of the book in Hebraic Old Testament terminology because that's where he was, that's who he was, right? He's interpreting this, what he sees in heaven through the lenses of the glasses he has on as who he is. And he's picturing, God's picturing for us this New Testament era And he says, and I saw another angel, or messenger could be translated, fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on all the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Whether they're across the pond, or whether a few miles down in Providence. All kindred nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. Saying with a loud voice... Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the foundations of the waters. Now clearly that's not the whole gospel message. But do you see the end of the gospel message in that? Should that flavor, should that spice our gospel message To the peoples who know not the living God? Yes. They're called to worship. As we see in John 4, as Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, God is seeking worshipers. His effectual call is to make people worshipers of him. Let us remember that. And so we're called to worship. The nations are called 
to worship. They're called to worship in the beauty of holiness, and so are we. We're to put on Christ's righteousness, and we're to come with clean hands. Remember Peter, when Peter wanted to be fully washed. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to wash you. You're clean. I'll wash your feet. If you're a believer today, you've been changed. You're justified. But we all need continual forgiveness. And we need to prepare our hearts by dealing with our sins before the Lord, before we come into his presence, right? In our personal worship, in our corporate worship, so that we might fear or reverence him. And he calls at the end of verse 9 here, all the earth to this task. All the earth. Kind of a foretaste of Paul's doctrine of the wall of partition coming down. The unity between the Jew and the Gentile. And that word Gentile could quite literally be translated peoples or nations. Sometimes, I think I've been hung up with the word Gentile. It represents everybody but a Jew to the Jew. So who does it represent to us? Everybody that's not in the covenant people. Right? Every unbeliever, the peoples, whether they live next door or they live thousands and thousands of miles away. So we've seen the call to worship and witness, the motives. Now we've looked at this repetition of the call to worship. Now the call to witness restated in verses 10 through 13. Now this is addressed to the covenant people, obviously. Say among the heathen. So he's not telling the heathen to say amongst themselves. He's calling the covenant people to speak these things to those who are not the covenant people. Three things he says. First, in verse 10, the Lord Jesus Christ reigns as messianic king. That's what we need to tell the nations. We also need to tell the nations that the Lord Jesus Christ rules over creation, verses 11 and 12. And then we need to tell the nations the Lord Jesus Christ's government is just and righteous in verse 13. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Immediately following that, he tells the disciples through their representative Peter that he's going to give them the keys of the kingdom, bringing into close connection the church and the kingdom. God is worshipped where his rule and reign is acknowledged. I'm going to go back to Revelation quickly. I believe the first horseman of the four horsemen in Revelation 6-2 is Jesus Christ himself. Who else could it be who rides on a white horse, has a bow, has a crown on his head, and goes forth conquering and to conquer? I believe this is another picture of the promise and the assurance that the gospel will and Jesus, God will bring in all his people that he selected. And there yet awaits a great revival and reformation yet to wait us. Christ is preaching to you now through a very weak human instrument. Do you recognize that? I'm sure you believe, but 
May the Lord help your unbelief. When God's ambassadors, as weak as we are, speak, Christ speaks. Romans 10, 14. When God's ambassadors speak, the Father speaks. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. When a humble, weak, God's ambassador speaks, we're told in Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit speaks. Worshiping God is serious business. That's what I think Paul is getting at when he says in 1 Corinthians that he came to them in weakness and fear and trembling. I don't think he was just kind of afraid, like a wimpy kind of afraid. I think he was quaking in his boots because he recognized he was God's ambassador. Could you imagine if you were an ambassador of the United States to one of the great nations of the world? You think if you went to approach some great potentate to speak to them on behalf of the president of the free, you know, of the of this nation, you wouldn't quake in your boots a little bit? Imagine if you're speaking for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Christ reigns as Messianic King. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. We need to proclaim that to the heathen. We need to proclaim to them that Christ rules over the creation in verses 11 and 12. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Many Reformed commentators believe here, and I think this probably applies to both, but they think this applies to the angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. Let the heavens rejoice. Let all God's people that are in the unseen world rejoice as well as the angels. And let the earth be glad. Let all his saints that still are in the body rejoice, be glad. But then he goes on to say, let the sea roar, let the fullness thereof, let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the woods rejoice. I think God is speaking here eschatologically. I think he's hinting, giving us a foretaste of what Paul's going to teach us in Romans 8 about a cosmic renovation. The created order rejoicing because they're no longer going to be in bondage from the fall. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We worship God right now in this special, special, special presence. There's yet something else that awaits God's people. And we ought to look in light of that. We ought to appreciate what we have, recognizing there's something even better coming. When we'll see him as he is. When we'll be like him. When we won't have these distractions that we still have. Right? When even our good deeds of worshiping him on his day in regulated worship is still, there's still some filthy rags connected to it. It's still tainted with our sin. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. The gospel of grace in Christ brings truth to cultures of falsehood and error. And our culture is becoming more and more like that. It not only brings truth to cultures of falsehood, it brings light to dark cultures. And it also brings order to chaotic cultures. 
God is a God of truth, God of light, God of order. And the gospel brings those things. And when the church is salt and light in a nation, a nation will be more and more righteous and God will exalt the righteous nation, he says in Proverbs. But it all starts here. Judgment begins with the house of God. May he stir us up to serve him. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns, verse 10. The Lord Christ rules over creation, verses 10 and 11, 11 and 12. The Lord Jesus Christ's government is just and righteous. Before the Lord, for he cometh, he cometh to judge. This word could be translated rule. The kingdom, the government is on his shoulders. He rules even now. Verse 13 It's easy for us to take it in reference to the second coming of Christ, but obviously to those that sung this before his coming is a reference to his first and second coming. His messianic reign that will eventually lead to the fourth stage of his exaltation, his return in glory to the judgment day. Let me briefly apply the sermon. Four applications. First, we and the nations need stirring up. We all need to be stirred up to give the glory to God that's due his name. We don't need to come empty-handed or empty-voiced. That means we should say the amen at the end of the prayer. That means... We ought to sing the Psalms if we are physically able to sing them with joy and reverence. We shouldn't bring God worship that doesn't cost us anything, as David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24. (laughs) Secondly, we're called to joyful worship. Fear, yes. Joy, yes. They're not mutually exclusive. Just remember what we just read about David's rejoicing. Do you remember any of you, his wife, looking out the window? How did she respond to his rejoicing? She despised for it. That's the wrong response to joyful worship. Even if it goes a little too far, I still don't think the right Response for us is despising. It might be gently speaking to someone the truth in love, but it doesn't mean we would despise those that worship God joyfully. Thirdly, witness is the overflow of worship. Have you ever thought that our witness is a barometer of our real worship? If they're connected, if witness is the overflow of our worship, does the zeal of our witness reflect the zeal of our worship? They're intimately connected. And fourthly, worship is the goal of witness. As I said in John 4, 23, God is seeking worshipers. The psalmist calls the kings of the earth, as representatives of the nations, the peoples of the earth, kiss the sun, lest he be angry. 
Humbly submit to his authority. The aim of missions is God's glory. The first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer is the goal of missions. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the goal of missions. And that is what we're called to be engaged in worship and witness. May the Lord bless the reading, the preaching of his word. Please turn with me to Psalm 67.